Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening. My name's Josh Hodges. I'm the host of Online with an Architect. Uh, very excited today. I was at uh, VMware Explore uh, a bit over a month ago, bumped into Nick, uh, who I've met many times in my life, and thought, why don't we do a podcast? So very happy to have you on. Welcome, Nick Howell. Uh, thank you very much, Josh. And I, I welcome the opportunity and, and loved having a, a good chin wag uh, with fellow fellow architects and fellow community members uh, from time to time. It's great to catch up and it's great to sort of check points and see where people are at. You know, we, we've been in this business and industry for so long now that we it's good to check in on your on your fellow brothers and sisters that are in this community that is largely smaller than it is uh, anything big. So, mm. yeah, happy absolutely. to be here. Yeah, I think it was great at Explore. Bumped into so many people I haven't seen for a couple of years due to COVID and other things. And uh, yeah, everyone's like, hey, can we have a chat? And I'm like, let's just do it on the podcast. Let's do it live. Um, or We're doing it live! Uh, yeah. <laughs> so uh, yeah, very uh, very humble to have all these amazing people come on the show. So, um, Oh, thank you for having me. Appreciate yeah, it. Uh, my pleasure. So do you want to, for people who may not know you um, and may not know NetApp that well, do you want to give us a, a quick background on yourself and then we'll, we'll jump in? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I'm, I'm really the best way to describe it is I'm the accidental IT guy. I shouldn't, I'm not supposed to be here. I was a baseball player that wanted to be a fighter pilot. Like I, I, I didn't want to do any of that stuff. Um, my first job out of college, I went for mechanical engineering hmm. was, uh, going to set up a new set of diesels. It, that's all I knew about it. And this was probably like 98, 97, 98. And there was nothing but a concrete pad sitting there in four crates with all the different pieces of the Caterpillar in it. And um, I, it was a concrete pad with a skeletal kind of frame. Mm. It was going to be a giant, it was going to be a data center. I said, what's this going to be? And they're like, it's a data center. And I said, what's a data center? I had no idea. Mm. And I mean, fast forward through the years, I got my, I ended up, you know, <laughs> I make the joke about evolution of where, you know, uh, Homo erectus stands up for the first time. Like I, for the first time I saw a guy standing at a keyboard, a KVM in a, at a, at a rack. Mm. I was like, what's, what do you do? And he told me about being, you know, data center administrator, systems admin kind of stuff. And a year later I was an MCSE 2000 and you know, then VMware came on. And then I started blogging about that when the late two thousands and Twitter came about and uh, under a mm. uh, uh, data center dude, and I created my data center dude.com blog. And, for the last 10 or so years, um, haven't done it as much lately because I think video has taken over what we're doing now. Mm. Um, you know, new media effectively has taken over from the written word. Um, but yeah, I'm, I've been at NetApp now with a brief little break in the middle, uh, since 2011. And it's been, I got, I had to go scratch the startup itch there in the middle. That, that'll, that'll get you about every, about five years into doing like big vendor manufacturing stuff. You'll start to go, you know, I like that idea over there. So you got, you got to go scratch that. And so being first 50 in a brand new storage startup was, it was, it was fun. It was interesting. It was different. Um, some of the things I loved about that, some things I didn't. Um, but I eventually found my way back to NetApp uh, a couple years later. Um, and mainly to fire up this new, a lot of the stuff we're going to talk about today around cloud. They they really needed some some we were really you know staffing up and gearing up for what was to come in 2017 2018 over the course of the next five plus years which was the move to cloud so I've I've been a pretty big part of that uh, we created a, a kind of an office of the CTO team mm -hmm. uh, in cloud um, helped kick that uh, get that off the ground under uh, Yancy Stephenson um, 
it's been a fant- I think there's 10 of us in the 12 of us in the group now. So it's been a, it's been a fantastic ride since 2018 when I came back and started with the partner community and then now have moved more into the sort of kind of a global role mm. of just general evangelism and strategy and things like that. But yeah, yeah it's, it's uh, the, the cloud stuff has been exciting. Um, there's a lot of lessons learned in there that I hopefully we can share some of those and talk about those today. Mm. Oh, absolutely. Lessons learned are, are great. I'm, I'm always happy to share mistakes I've made so someone else doesn't make them. So yeah, by all means. <laughs> <laughs> made plenty so where of should we start? Yeah. Well, let, let's start. What, what's NetApp doing these days? What's, what's the latest after Explore? What, what are we uh, uh, seeing going on in the NetApp world? The latest one is um, there's a couple of pretty big milestones that have happened in the last, I'd say, 90 days. Um, the biggest of which is we've completed our sort of marathon that we've been on since 2017, where we now have first party storage in each of the three major cloud providers. And that has been a marathon of its of evolution of its own in, in those what six years now that we've been doing it. Started as one thing, became something completely different, and then somebody else evolved it and made it completely different and finally found the, the Goldilocks. I'll, I'll credit AWS with finding the Goldilocks of the mix of everything. Mm-hmm. And it's basically just get out of the way and let the cloud provider do what they want to do with it. And, you know, to some extent. But I now that we have, um, uh, what do they call it? Um, uh, AW, FSX, sorry, I'm, I'm blanking on Amazon FSX for NetApp ONTAP. I, some of these names you have to get right. We affectionately call it FSX ONTAP. Hmm. Um, they have it in as part of the FSX portfolio alongside Windows, Luster, OpenZFS, uh, things like that. So for anybody that wants the experience of running a storage system without the hardware and floor tile overhead, you can get that with FSX. Uh, a few years before, we did it with Microsoft in Azure as well, but they took the actual NetApp hardware and located it within, not cross-connected, not third-party Equinix, none of that stuff. They actually put the storage arrays in the Microsoft Azure data centers, and they're wired directly to the fabric interconnects of the server platforms. Like that's That was a huge milestone in 2018 when we launched that. Like there's actually a 700 bigger batter boxes than you've probably got in your server room are available to you as a SAS offering or PaaS offering um, in Azure natively. And you just at the top of the Azure portal, Azure NetApp files, and you, you create a storage container, you create your volumes and voila, you have access to all of the, all of the flex and snap words that everybody loves in on tap. Mm. Just, just like that. Uh, the most recent one, when, the, when I said it started, I said we completed this. Was, the one that was left was Google Cloud. We did have a solution called Cloud Volume Service, where it was basically another PaaS solution where you just create volumes and you mount them up and you're done. You don't have to worry about anything underneath. People said they wanted one sub-level below that to be able to manage certain things. So we've delivered that. It's Google Cloud NetApp Volumes is, is what that's going to be, uh, it, what that's called. Um, and the beauty of that is we now have complete coverage across all three of the cloud providers with, with that milestone. So on, it's a phrase that I started saying probably 2019, it's just on tap everywhere. Mm. And when you have that, it sounds like a marketing slogan, but it's when you let it sink in what it means on tap is such a beautiful system that allows you to move between on tap to on tap almost seamlessly. So any of your snaps, mirrors, any of that stuff, it's, it's on tap. 
right? So all of the commands and all of the functionality and everything that you've come to expect as someone that might be administering NetApp on-prem, you're going to get the exact same experience in a first-party cloud-based service in whichever cloud provider you choose. It's it's magnificent how, how well it's turned out. It's taken us a long time to get there. Mm. Yeah, I mean, that's not an insignificant task to get three major <laughs> hyperscalers to, to firstly get on board and, and want to develop an offering, uh, but to actually execute it and have it productized is, is a huge achievement. And yeah. I think the messaging about keeping it simple and making it the same as on-prem is very closely aligned to the stuff that's close to my heart, which is, of course, all the VMware multi-cloud solution where yep. you know, you're taking your on-prem with VMware or Nutanix, whatever, you're taking it into your hyperscalers and you're getting the same experience. So having NetApp provide that on the storage layer as well, you know, it's all coming together. It's all aligning. So you know, going to the cloud is no longer a, a massive refactoring process. Um, we can do lift and shift. We can do it fairly easily. Um, and, uh, and I think it's great. I think giving customers all those options that are reasonably quick and easy uh, yeah. don't require massive projects to re-architect everything uh, is fantastic. And once you're in the cloud, sure, if you want to re-architect something, go for it. But getting there is or has been traditionally the difficult and uh, expensive part. And this type of solution just makes it it's so much easier. And well, rewind, the, rewind the clocks back to the 2000s. What was the first thing you did after you, create, after you did a P2V migration? Well, you hoped it worked, first of all. <laughs> sure. Given that it, you know, given that it did work and it came back up and you were able to get services back online, what was the very next step? Oh, you'd be installing tools and you'd be installing all these pieces and, and trying to, again, hope that that's not interfering with anything else. So I was hoping you would say create a new VM from scratch without all of the hardware bloatware on it. Wow, that, that's like phase eight. It's like, okay. down. It's like you've got it there. Right. But so it's a, there's a little bit of refactoring that goes into that, right? Because part of the reason, one of the side effects of doing a P2V, and especially in the early days, was you didn't need all of the drivers and the firmware mm -hmm. for the hardware that it came off of in the first place. So I would always, whenever we were, I did over a thousand P2Vs in a number of years, and mm -hmm. we just wiped servers out of the server room. Oh, and days. I really enjoyed that. Oh, I'm man. Really when you have hard. to go get the pallet jack for the 10th time, on a weekend because you've stacked up a pallet of servers, stack of servers on a pallet to pull it out of the, out of the cage. Like that's, those were good times. Those were backbreaking times. Um, they were long hours times, but those were, those were the good old days. Um, no, I'm, I'm, I'm the point I'm trying to make is like when we got done with a P to V, the very first thing you do is you go create a kind of a clean install, fresh, uh, implementation, uh, so that, and then do a cutover at some point in the future mm -hmm. to that cleaner, more efficient, faster, lighter, easier to back up and snap, things like that. The considerations around the back end come into play there. And then you just decommission that, that previous one, right? The P to V. So it'd be P to V to pull the server out, but then you V to V, or mm -hmm. you just cut over the service and eliminate the virtual machine, the P to V virtual machine, right? Mm -hmm. Same thing is happening in the cloud. Same exact kind of process. I, it's weird. I have this weekly deja vu when I'm talking to customers because they are um, they're they're trying to do the low hanging fruit. They're trying to do the servers that don't matter. They're trying to do backup and recovery, uh, whether that's a fan out or a third tertiary cascade or something like that. They're making cloud a destination, hmm. and it's funny because I see the very the first first thing I see them do is they'll move an application or a a, a workload uh, is the word in the cloud that we use a stack. They'll move it up to the cloud, 
And a, one of the more prolific ways we're seeing this done is with things like VMC and AWS. We're seeing a lot of VMs and things like that. But the very first thing, the very next thing that they're doing, Josh, is refactoring. Their containers have come a long way. Um, persistent storage has come a long way. Kubernetes has come a long way. So we're now seeing this point where they're, they're migrating these workloads and stacks out of the data center up into the cloud providers and uh, start the refactoring process. One of the biggest things that was missing was functional storage. So to take it back to the why the, the cloud storage stuff really mattered and how we got there, it was a big task, as you said. And I will say that we probably would not have been able to do it without the most key thing, in my opinion, being the relationships mm. that we had with Microsoft, AWS, and Google Cloud. It, it helps when your CEO's twin brother is also the CEO of Google Cloud. Mm. I'm joking, but it did not help. <laughs> the, so now that when you have those relationships, so give you an example, Google Cloud, fantastic at NFS, had no idea how to implement Active Directory and SMB. Uh, Azure, fantastic at Active Directory and SMB, Windows has never gotten NFS right. Mm. So when you when you so there was a bit of a cry for help. There was a bit of a bat phone of like, hey, Godfathers of NAS, come come help us do these things. And that those relationships mm. are some of the things that really started the conversations. Um, we, they were trying to solve a problem, and we were trying to help solve a problem for customers. What we didn't realize is that the cloud providers also had that same problem. They couldn't solve the problem that customers were asking them to solve. And so that was where the opportunity was really born from. We had done on tap cloud SDS, you know, running it as a VM. We've had, we still have cloud volumes on tap today. If that's what you want to do, you can do it that way. But these first party solutions that are actual services that just show up on your monthly bill from the cloud provider. It's that is the next step. That is the next big evolutionary step. And I'm, not to say this brazenly, but like, where's everybody else, man? Like, I, I'm. Uh, we were talking before we started recording. I miss the days of 2010 EMC versus NetApp a little bit. I'm one of those weirdos, right? <laughs> but, but like, where's everybody else? Why is nobody else doing this stuff? And it, it, it makes me question: like, are we that far ahead, or are we just going in the wrong direction? You know, you try to put your finger on the wind and the pulse of what's going on and all that kind of stuff. But no, I, I think we are so far ahead that we've got such a big leap on things now that we've just outrun and outpaced. It's very rare that you outpace the industry, but I feel like we've outpaced the industry in a way when it comes to storage around the cloud stuff specifically. You know, it's, it's fine that the others can go brag about how big their flash drive, latest flash drive is. Cool. We've got big ones too. That, that's fine. But I don't see anybody else lining up to do, to invest you know, five to 10 years of hardcore engineering R&D in partnership with the cloud providers to deliver this kind of service to end users. Mm. I, and I if think they started really today, they'd be three to five years away from doing it. Yeah. And look, as, as an architect I, over my career, right, it was mostly solution architecture. It was the nuts and bolts and the physical layer right. that I was focused on. As we mature in our careers, we realize the enterprise side, the commercial business side is more important um, or not more important, maybe it's equally as important and needs significant attention. And the partnerships you referred to is actually the thing I see most valuable is the cloud providers, the hyperscalers have gone to major vendors like NetApp 
and they've come up with the first-party solutions. They've given it even a name, first-party solutions, so that people know it's co-engineered, there's co-investment, and they've got skin in the game. And if I'm a customer, I go, okay, cool, the cloud provider's invested in these companies. That, to me, says that's something worth considering. Whether I ultimately go with it or not, it's something I should at least consider uh, because, obviously, Amazon and you know, Azure and Google are not going to put in something that they think is redundant, right? They're just not going to do it, right? It's not worth their time. Uh, and nor would NetApp invest in the hyperscales if you thought there was nothing there either. So you've got yep. some pretty smart companies and smart people who have co-engineered some solutions that do certain things. Definitely a good thing to look at. And like I said earlier, just very complementary to what I call the hyperscaler hypervisor model, which is, you know, putting a hypervisor on top of a hyperscaler and, and getting that value of, of lift and shift, just like NetApp's giving uh, in this situation. So I think it all comes together. So well, I want to add on to one thing you just said there. We accomplished that back in 2014 when we had Cloud ONTAP where you could uh, just run ONTAP in a VM. Mm. And that's that exists to this day as Cloud Volumes ONTAP. What I'm referring to here is is the ability for an end user to come in and create a net new account in AWS or Azure or Google Cloud and create a new EC2 instance or mm-hmm. Azure VM or Google Cloud instance and immediately add on the service mm-hmm. as they don't even need to know who NetApp is. There's an obvious use case for anybody that uses NetApp on-prem mm-hmm. to take advantage of these services, but... I like looking at the stretch cases of like the, what about the developers that are just looking for persistent storage? Their default is going to be to go to whatever the cloud provider provides. Mm. And so, but if the more that they learn, there can be a little bit left on the table with some of the native services from the cloud provider. Um, they're not storage architects at mm. the end of the day. They're not, they don't have 30 years of legacy of, you know, learning all the big mistakes and the lessons from, from doing storage. Mm. So they, absolutely leaned on us, but for that first time developer or cloud architect that's coming in that maybe wants to do more than just stand up one instance to do a test run of something, if they're actually building production workloads that need three, two, one backup scenarios, local, regional, national, global type of, you know, redundancy, they're going to need something a little bit more than EBS. Hmm. And Okay, so now your one workload has your one plus n EBS volumes. Well, what what about the next ten workloads? Well, what it, they're going to need their own one plus n EBS volumes, and they're going to be siloed. Mm. Well, what if you could take all of that and put that together uh, into a? Does it? If this sounds familiar to you, it's because it's the exact same pitch mm. of shared storage that we did in the mid to late two thousands mm. for VMware. Yeah, absolutely. Guys, this is all, none of this is new. (laughs) It's it's the same thing. And you could make an argument. It goes back to green screens and and mainframes. So this kind of stuff, these kinds of practices, the, the, there's a little bit of context switching between whether you're working with developers, whether you're working with seasoned VM admins on prem, like there's a little bit of that there, but at the end of the day, it's shared storage for multiple workloads. It's just yep. in the cloud instead. Just done easier with less effort, with less yeah. architectural considerations. You don't need to hire me to do a, a massive storage design. Uh, you can just sort of select it as a service, which I think is is hugely valuable as well. And it moves the conversation yeah. to a, a strategy as opposed to a, a nuts and bolts. 
You know, what yep. does my RAID DP look like? Well, how many shelves do I need? No, we don't need to worry about that. We need to worry about the outcome. Um, so exactly. it's more of an enterprise architecture discussion than back in the day in the solution architecture side. So I've always been a an engineer's engineer in the sense of start at the end and work backwards. Mm. Like, what do you want the outcome to be? And anytime I do consultations with customers or you know partners or anything like that, I always go to the right side of the whiteboard and write outcome in the top mm. right and make them fill that out first. Because yeah. I can get you there with there's infinite software and solutions that are available for just about any kind of outcome you'd like to have. But if you don't know what your outcome it wants to, mm. you want your outcome to be, it, it's going to be tricky to get you there. Yeah, so, absolutely. yeah. And uh, one of the, one of the point of information there that I'll throw at you is um, you brought up an interesting point. So the old way of acquiring gear mm. was you would spend six months bringing in three vendors, doing POCs, evaluating all of the gear. Then you would pick one and you'd have to go either present to the board or get your CIO to sign off on it or your IT director, whatever, to spend a million dollars on a storage system, a couple of racks of shelves and things like that. And then it might take three months for you to get that gear or line up a partner to be able to come in and bring it in and rack and stack it and do all of that stuff. And then you got to spend six months doing you know, unit testing, configuration, cable, all the stuff. Once you get it all stood up and you push the power button, it turns on. Okay, now what? Well, you still got to create volumes. You still got to set permissions. You still got to do all of the stuff, mm. right? That all happens now in AWS in 30 minutes. Mm. And, and I'm not saying that to be hyperbolic. I'm saying that in the sense of I have a cloud formation template that's about 20 lines of YAML that will do all of that automatically for me. And I can stand it up, tear it down, stand it up, tear it down, stand it up, tear it as many times as I want till I'm blue in the face. And, and that repeatability just, is really important because it means it you is. deploy things repeatably, reliably, and you know the outcome you're going to get from that. So yep. back in the day, you would get your, your favorite partner, vendor, whomever to come and do the job. If their best engineer wasn't available on the day and you got the second, third, fourth <laughs> engineer, sometimes the result would vary. And, and more often right. than not, it would vary. So what we're talking about here is giving a consistent outcome, which is exactly what a good architect and engineer should be doing, should be consistent and repeatable. Um, and that's why I always talk about repeatable models. It's so important. Um, if, if I did work for customers and I did everything bespoke every time, we'd be priced out of the market. So we've got to get efficiency and economy of scale. Um, and that's exactly what's happening in the cloud providers. They're making these steps that are repeatable, simple and quick. Yeah. So the time to value is, is fantastic with these solutions. Yeah, and it's it goes yeah. a lot to, you know, if I can shift gears a little bit, it, it goes a lot towards, you know, if we go back to the pain points I was talking about earlier that the cloud providers had around just NAS storage in general, whether it's mm -hmm. SMB or NFS, um, I think we were early on something that not a lot of people. So we have always been the NAS company. I mean, even though we've had SAN for you know, 2003, mm. Um, we've had, we can do SAN just as good as anybody else, but for some reason we've been typecast as the, the NAS company. Fine. From, from um, your success in fairness, right? You've been sure, very successful. Sure. So, you know, that's the paint, the, the brush that you've been painted with. Yeah. Yeah. A lot of that is to do with the, the architecture of the discs under the covers and the, the, the efficiencies of deduplication and things like that, that we became known for. But most of that was around file-based storage. Um, those efficiencies. Uh, we did the same thing with SAN. It's just, you know, our LUNs are individual files that live within the same volumes that the NAS volumes are. So it's, sorry to geek out an architect for a second. 
where I was going with this well, that's is, what we're here um, for. We're here to geek out and architect. So yeah. let's, let's go for it. Yeah. So there has been something that we predicted early on. We, we saw a rise. So, okay. So if you rewind the clocks, 10 years, massive explosion in all flash came out of seemingly nowhere. A lot of people thought it was the next evolutionary step, but it was bigger than that. If you didn't work in a storage manufacturer, you had no idea that that kind of a boom was coming. And to the point that we even downplayed it a little bit back in like 2012, right? There was even a kind of a downplay of like, eh, what we didn't see coming was the absolute explosion of, of all flash and the way that it sort of started kind of taking things over. And what we realized quickly is we could change a few lines in on tap and increase some of the efficiencies. And instead of putting three and a half in, we could just put, you know, two and a half inch flash drives in and, Oh my God, Holy crap. That's fast. <laughs> so that's, it was a really easy transition for us once we sat down and figured out what we needed to actually change. And it's grown ever since then. Um, what I didn't see coming personal, actually, no, that's not true. I did kind of call it probably 2016. I didn't see the, re I didn't clearly articulate the renaissance that file storage was about, the files themselves was about to have. And as so to kind of close out the conversation around, you know, cloud, we can't not talk about the absolute meteoric rise that the combination of containers, Kubernetes, mm -hmm. and cloud have have wrought uh, on the industry um let me throw some numbers at you that are a little over a year old at this point so bear with me okay these were captured in 2021 for what it's worth it's the end of 2023 at this point um where was that sorry i'm, I'm using this there it is uh 80 by the way these are idc esg and a survey that, survey that we did at netapp in 2021, all, uh, and I'll give you guys the sources if you want to look at the reports um, mm -hmm. for after the show, if you're listening to this later, 80% of worldwide data will be unstructured by 2025. Like, so for those that don't know, structured data, databases, unstructured data, like file shares, right? That's the easiest way to kind of simplify the, the description of that. So home drives, user shares, backup directories, basically everything else that's not uh, a database, mm. <laughs> frankly. Which is uh, a, lot. It, it, it's it, a lot of stuff that falls into that. Everything. 80% of the entire footprint of the world will be file-based unstructured data by 2025. Boom, right? 74%. I'm sorry, go ahead. I wonder what the current stat would be if they report, reported that again today, because it's certainly correct in my opinion. So I, yep. I wonder how far it's gone. I'd, watch that space. Hmm. <laughs> uh, it's, I'm, I'm working on that. 74% uh, of file-based enterprise applications, containers, Kubernetes, are candidates to move to the cloud today in 2021. Hmm. So if you're running homegrown applications, if you have something that is containerized, but maybe you're doing BYO Kubernetes on-prem, on something like that, you're likely using NFS for those file shares or that pers those persistent mm. volumes that you're mounting to those containers or to the uh, Kate's hosts. So yes, 
you could absolutely just move those to the cloud today because ONTAP exists in all three cloud providers. And we have the Trident extension, the most popular storage extension for Kubernetes to be able to a CSI provider to control your persistent volumes, snapshot them, clone them, back them up, all those things. So yeah, 75%, 74% of file-based enterprise apps. And I wish they would just say containers because that's the lion's share of what that is. Hmm. Uh, 59% of organizations expect to be mostly cloud-based within the next 18 months. That's the scary one for me. As a data center dude, as a data center guy, as an infrastructure dinosaur, as uh, as my CTO once called, former CTO once called me, I um, that was almost 18 months ago mm. when that stuff came out. Um, and I'm sitting here going, yeah, it's starting to kind of come true a little bit. Yeah, I think I remember sending a tweet out start of this year. It might have been January, February, something like that, where I said, I'm pretty sure this is going to be the year people start very seriously looking at moving to these hyperscaler solutions uh, with a Nutanix or a VMware and going in. And I feel like certainly what I'm saying is that's exactly what's happening. Um, yep. Every conversation I've had includes, hey, let's look at one of these options or multiple of them. Um, and even if the customer ultimately stays on-prem, that's where they're heading, right? It's yep. really just a, a when, not an if. Uh, so depending on their commercial situation and things like that, they, they might stay on-prem, you know, in the short term, but that's a hundred percent what I'm seeing. And, uh, that report seems to have rung true. And, uh, my prediction seems to have been true and it, it's handy when that happens. Josh, I got a question for you mm. in sitting in front of you mm. is a, um, a PO for a storage system that's mm. going to cost you a hundred thousand dollars. Next to that is a, a bit of an EA with a cloud provider mm. for $120,000, but you get the exact same services out of it. Mm. You just have to pay a monthly bill, $10,000 a month, whatever that number is. You would be blown away how many people run away from signing long-term POs, three year, the three-year refresh mm. meme. Right? True. Although an accountant might look at that and go, this is great for cash flow. Right. Absolutely. Oh, it's 20 grand Operations more. versus CapEx. Absolutely. Yeah, fantastic. So, I mean, there's yep. a straight away just a, a non-technical comparison. A cloud oh, and by the way, that can market. change in a moment's notice month to month. You can mm. dial up and dial down mm. that number as you see fit. So you're not locked into this three-year thing, mm. obelisk of, of a purchase that you've made mm. uh, that you have to live and die with and make the best of it for the next three years because that's all you get you know, kind of thing. Mm. Yeah. But interestingly, that, that example you gave, if I'm given the choice of, you know, hundred K for a storage device, right. From any vendor, yeah. this, this is conceptually the same for any vendor. So whatever your, the listener's preference is, doesn't make any difference. And then 120 K for a service that delivers an outcome. I can promise you it's going to cost you more than 20 K to design yeah. and deliver that solution. So yeah. from a, an actual total cost of ownership perspective, doing it yourself in many cases, maybe not all, but in many cases, is far more expensive than these cloud providers. And the, the funny thing that, that I've had more experience with, less so with, with NetApp in recent years, but certainly in the, in the multi-cloud space with, with VMware and Nutanix, those are seen as expensive solutions in the market, typically. Probably 90% of people tell me, oh, that's a bit too expensive, Josh. I don't think I'll do that. I'll stay on-prem. Okay, cool. What I actually see is, when I do a TCO with those customers, 
and this is back at Nutanix and now exactly the same sort of thing, it ends up being cheaper. And it ends up being cheaper for many, many reasons. Um, One of them is the actual outcome they're looking for. The value to the business is so high that even if it was more expensive, right, the actual piece that they're subscribing to, the outcome is worth it. Whereas the delay potentially doing it yourself costs more than it saves. So just those commercial um, angles are things that I don't think a lot of IT people considered um, traditionally. So buying a service, getting an outcome is so much more valuable. Like I would hate to write a complete new data center design from scratch, right, for a customer who wanted something done in a timely manner. Because as much as that would be an interesting project and be fun and, you know, we'd learn a lot along the way and it'd be a great outcome, it would just take too long. So just the the time to value thing, which most vendors talk about, some people think it's marketing. I'm I'm on the opposite. I think time to value is incredibly important. And if you pay twice as much to get something in half the time, usually that's worth doing. Absolutely. And I, you know what the number one thing that see it to me, see, I, I noticed that CIOs are struggling with over the last few years and today skills gap. Mm. They imagine being presented. You're, you're in leadership of a large it organization inside of a company and you have the option to do a three year refresh or just put it 10 K a month on the Amex, but you can't mm. because you have the, you're in the conundrum of, do I train my existing staff? and certify them and, you know, lose work cycles, send them to classes that are thousands of dollars, get them multiple certification attempts, all of that stuff that comes along with that. Or do I turn over the staff and hire the right kind of staff to operate in the cloud? Or is Mm -hmm. it somewhere in the middle? That's the, that's the, has absolutely nothing to do with the technology or the capability of the technology. It's it people process and politics. It's the good old three P's of stuff that come Mm -hmm. into that. So yeah, it's a lot of what we're seeing right now is um, is, is people related, and I think there there is a skills gap, um, and I think one of the pe- reasons people hang on to kind of their VMware VM driven data centers that they have today mm. is because it's comfortable. Mm. I mean, like it's the old if it ain't broke, adage. Mm. And the, the skills gap is yeah, huge. They, I, I've heard they, it probably every day in the last couple yeah. of weeks. I've been asked. You know, am I willing to do partner to partner work? Of course we are, right? Are we willing to help this person? Yes, of course we will, right? We're not competing with people. We're trying to complement their workforce. So when someone says, oh, can your team come in and do this piece and then mentor our team? Yeah, of course we can. No problems. Yeah. Happy to do that. So this, that's why my it company- It goes beyond yeah. traditional knowledge transfer though, right? Yeah. When you would do a when you do an install or a rack and stack or something like that, like you're, you're changing the way people think about deploying workloads. Mm. Fundamentally- like it's it's very similar to a VMware esque style of of deploying something or just a virtualized style. It's technically still virtualized, but mm. you're using built in PaaS and SaaS services to um, either be auxiliary to that workload rather than standing up an additional server or VM and mm. running the software over there. Like you're still kind of doing the same things. If you're in AWS, you're doing multiple EC2 instances, maybe subnetting them away from each other maybe going across region, depending on geolocation, like there's Mm. additional considerations, but fundamentally it's similar. Mm. And I I find that people that have worked with virtualization in the past have a much, much quicker ramp Mm. um, and, and lower learning curve to, to deal, contend with. 
um, when it comes to working in the cloud. And to your point about the CIO's dilemma about whether they hire new people or train up their old or their existing, I shouldn't say old because that's, that's maybe us, <laughs> but, um, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but you know, keep, keep your staff and, and train them up because some of their IP yeah. is your organization. And, and that's actually very difficult to teach. It, it takes a long time to ramp in an organization, especially large ones. Um, I'm a big fan of enablement as well. I feel like yeah. if you invest in your team, they're going to be very loyal to you. They're going to enjoy their job. And if they're virtualization people with, with VMware or whatever on-prem, they're going to pick up that stuff in the cloud very quickly anyway because conceptually there's a lot of similarities. Um, and it's also, in my mind, very important to have that experience with the prior technology. Um, it's also important if you ever wanted to go back. Like you don't want to actually have your staff you know, so narrowly focused on something that if you change anything, they can't adapt. So right. I think enabling people up is, is a good way to go. Bring in some consultants to, to hit that skills gap you, you touched on and then, you know, enable those people up. And I think that's a, a better way to go, faster way to go. People don't lose their jobs. Everyone's kind of happy. So that, that's my take on that. As a people leader, you find out real quick when you start offering people opportunities to skill up and train and all of this kind of stuff, you're going to find out real quick who's interested in that because mm -hmm. most some of them are going to go, this is the obvious minority, but it's like some of them are going to go, no, nah, I'm good. Mm. Like the old dinosaurs like us are being like, nah, I'm good. I just, I'll just keep managing the storage. I, mm. you know, but there's going to be those that are a little bit more ambitious and gung ho. They're going to want to go. Yeah. I've been reading all this stuff about cloud. I, I am, I, I want to make sure that I take care of my career that I'm just starting. Mm. I know I'm a junior systems admin now, but I want to be a cloud architect. And because all of this stuff is so yeah, you're going to find the ones that are the, the cream will rise to the top. You'll find mm -hmm. the, the, the rock stars that, that pop up out of the woodwork uh, all of a sudden mm -hmm. and they go get trained and they go get three different cloud provider certifications in the span yeah. of six months. And next thing you know, they're the ones sort of reimagining all of the workloads of the company mm -hmm. because it's uh, likely a hybrid cloud scenario between the multiple, either multiple clouds or an on-prem and cloud solution. Mm. And, and we should definitely cover that off as well. I don't want to interrupt your train of thought, but the, yeah. the hybrid piece, I'm personally very interested in. It's, you know, I've been a big uh, champion of making resilient solutions and focusing on business continuity and disaster recovery and mitigating risks of ransomware and things like that. So that's been a focus of mine for a long time. And the, the thing with me is people always go, oh, you worked at, say, Nutanix, right? But you're recommending Nutanix plus something else to deliver an outcome. Yeah, I am because, you know, no one vendor can do everything, first point. And second point is if a vendor potentially got compromised, I want my data somewhere else on a different vendor's product, right, to be able to, you know, restore in a different manner. So that three, two, one you mentioned, yeah, one of those might be on a, you know, whatever other product. But yep. your primary and your secondary, or at least one of your secondaries, ideally should be different technologies. So... I think what we're doing here in the cloud, whether we have a, a VMware or a Nutanix or a native Azure or a native AWS, having some NetApp behind it or even another vendor conceptually is extremely valuable. Right? It's really, really important to separate out uh, your data. And most of this is data management. It's not even about virtualization. Yeah. Right? It's just where's my data? How am I managing it? Uh, and where can I go from and to? So the fact that in this case, we're talking NetApp. We've got three hyperscaler choices, all with first-party solutions. That, that's a pretty good option. I might want Azure today, 
and then tomorrow Google might come out with a massive special that I can jump on. Cool. I've got those services there. I've got that ability to move regardless of who the hyperscaler is. I think yep. the CIO's job today is in some ways becoming easier because there's a lot more choice and flexibility that the technology is provided. And the hyperscalers see it as well. I think when you try and lock someone into your product, customers are reluctant to go there. Yeah, But with like the multi-cloud solutions with what NetApp are doing, you're not locked in at all. You've actually got quite quick routes out of these places. And I think customers appreciate it. Uh, I certainly do as an architect. I think things change over time and you want to be able to help your customer move from point A to point B. Uh, yeah. And these are great ways to do it. It's much easier, in fact, to move from a hyperscaler A to hyperscaler B than it is on-prem to anywhere else. I feel like because the hyperscalers have the services built in. So it, it's actually easier, I think. Maybe not you know, massively easier, but I think it is still easier. I look at it in the sense of, like if I were architecting something today for a very large IT organization, knowing what I know, mm -hmm. I know that certain cloud providers are really good at certain things and others are better at some of those things than the others. Mm -hmm. uh, for example, um, uh, authentication, Windows apps, uh, Office 365, absolutely going to have Azure, right? As that, as that sort of thing. Um, I really love working with Kubernetes and ECS in AWS. I really love BigQuery and some of the things that they're doing with Vertex in Google Cloud. The answer is not there can be only one. This isn't a Highlander scenario. You're likely going to find yourself in a place in the, sometime in the next 10 years where you have something in all three of them. Mm. And, I, and I, have, I have customer executives all the time tell me, oh, we haven't moved to the cloud yet. Really? Um, do you guys use OneDrive? Do you, do you have Office 365? Congratulations, you're a cloud customer. You, oh, oh, that's cloud. And I went. <laughs> and you can. It's funny to see the the eyes. Their eyes light up when they and the light bulb go off, and you, you get it right. So uh, then, all of a sudden, we start having a conversation about what if I told you you could do the exact same thing with your backups, mm. and you would never have to touch a tape ever again. <gasps> right on the lowest foundational level it's always backups and dr so what if i told you that you've got a secondary site that you're sending all of your information or your data over to and then that gets pulled off onto tapes and gets picked up and taken off to a vault somewhere in the mountains um what if i told you that instead of sending it to the secondary site you could just stand something up in the cloud and just send it there hmm. And then for your tertiary, you could just send it to another region or even another cloud provider. Like that is that is the line of thinking that we have to get people to. That it, we're we're so ingrained in the ways that we old architects did things in the late '90s and the 2000s. Like we we have to let go of some of those things. It'll be okay, mm. <laughs> right? It's like so instead of having a colo facility, now the cloud is effectively your colo. Mm. I mean, what's the affectionate name for people who don't want to give up their data center? I think it's a server hugger. Um, so uh, yeah. hug onto our hardware. Um, and uh, I think that's true. Some people like to, to touch and feel. Um, Man, I, I don't know if we can see it on screen or not, but I mean, I don't want to move my camera around or nothing, but there's two racks with servers, three ESX hosts in it back there and two storage arrays. And like, I, I, I am that infrastructure dinosaur. I love gear. 
I absolutely, there is, to me, there is an art to taking sheet metal and making, put, plugging a cable between the two of them and making them talk to each other. Mm. It is, it's sorcery to me. And it, I've always been fascinated with it for going on 30 years now. I have always enjoyed technology in that sense. And I, I don't think I ever will. I jokingly call it my classic car in the garage. It, it costs me too much money. It never really runs the way I want it to. I only really take it out and play with it on the weekends. Mm. Like, but that's, that's my, that's my, <laughs> my own spend and my own hobby in, in that sense. But yeah, it's it, the same exact things happen in data centers around the world every day. It's, and it's not a server, server hugger thing. It's, it's a comfort. It's a feeling of comfort that I know, I know where. Betty Sue and accounting's Excel spreadsheet lives. It's on that storage array that's over there in that building. And I can go get it off of that tape that's over there in the mountain if I need to, because I know. And there's a lot of people that are in that position have been in that position of comfort for decades that you lose that control when you put it up in the cloud. Um, but I'm here to tell you, it's okay. Yeah, They've it's got 10 X the redundancy virtual. that you could ever dream of on prem. I promise you. Oh, absolutely. And, and it's like when you went from a physical server to a virtual server, a lot of mostly DBAs, actually. Call out to all the DBAs who now are on board with virtualization. Thank you. But, uh, you know, back in the day, it was, no, 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 we need a physical box for this. This is a dedicated workload. It's very important. And now, you know, obviously over the last many, many years, we've shown it runs better uh, virtualized and, you know, with more resiliency and, and uptime, all this stuff. So um, you want to know what one of my first speaking engagements was? It was speaking on behalf of VMware after I had finished virtualizing Oracle in 2010. Oh, cool. And so I loved the reference there. That, that was one of the things that sort of put me on the map as a blogger, if you will, was like all of the stuff that I was doing with tier one apps and, and, and virtualizing them. And at the, you know, Oracle didn't support it. Yeah. Microsoft didn't support exchange. They did, but you had to run dedicated LUNs, whatever. Mm. Um, but yeah, that it's still the case today. Like we've, we've finally gotten, and we, we kind of jumped the shark a little bit too, in the sense of we, we just completely skipped the whole virtualizing it part and went straight to managed services. Mm. Like we've got uh, SQL paths in Azure managed SQL server. Uh, Oracle has their hosted Oracle instances in Oracle cloud. Mm. Um, and you've got all of the NoSQL stuff that's going on across the board in all three of the cloud providers. Mm. So I, I'm looking at this like a, they, we just completely skipped a step, and I'm I'm here for it. I absolutely I love the fundamentals of NoSQL. I know there's a lot of DBAs that'll out that'll disagree with that, but you haven't really pushed its limits to see what it's capable of. Um, if if you're still kind of poo pooing on it, because it is crazy what some of the, whether it's Cassandra or um, uh, what's Aurora, some of the things that those guys are doing, like it's crazy what you can do from a scalability standpoint. Um, and we've gotten, we've now gotten past the hurdles of eventual versus strict consistency. Like, yeah, all that works too. Hmm. So the managed services are here to stay. Hmm. To me, they're here to replace traditional lamp works workload stacks. Um, and you're just going to pay a subscription, just like we all do for TV. Now we have 10 different things that we subscribe to. Your company is too. It's going to have 10 different services, 20 different services that it subscribes to. And it pays a monthly bill for and that's just, that's the way it's going to be in the future. Mm. Um, I do see people make the mistakes and we've seen the evidence of companies going whole hog and just throwing the entire data center into the cloud without a plan. Mm. 
and it costing them millions of dollars. And then they turn around and they write up these huge articles, but we saved $400 million by going back to the data center. Mm. And the first thing that popped in my head was you don't know what you're doing. Mm. Pretty and much, I, right? I look at this as a, as an opportunity to engage uh, as an, as a fellow architect of like, how can we, how can we help people better design solutions? How, 15 years ago, how did we make VMware more efficient? We had to tweak and tune and do all of these things. We've got to do the same thing in the cloud, guys. Yeah, It's not some magic silver bullet. We've got to do the same tunables, the same configuration, the same best practices. It's it's still just IT at the end of the day. Mm. Yeah, the mistakes I, I see, I remember, you know, the tax office here in Australia, you know, had a massive outage um, and uh, the root cause analysis came out. I think I did a blog on it, actually. Um, and it was basically that, you know, the performance of the array they chose um, was insufficient. So they put everything on RAID 0, and then the performance was sufficient. But obviously, yeah, I mean, that, that's what happened. No! Right? So, and, I and had no we, idea. I'd never heard that. Yeah. Oh, really? Yeah, that's fantastic. Yeah, so... Uh, <laughs> that wasn't NetApp, was it? The, the tax office definitely didn't lose my tax bills, that's for sure. They, they kept that somehow. But, uh, uh, but yeah, look, they, they had massive downtime and data loss. And then in the root cause analysis, they also discovered that the cabling wasn't, the fiber channel cabling wasn't in a redundant manner and just all the 101 level mistakes. Mm. Um, and I'm not doing this to embarrass that, that team or, or that company, but these things are very pre preventable if you just plan things out properly. So the companies, to your example, who go all in on the cloud and just go bang, usually they have big problems. And sometimes yeah. they get a really good partner or a vendor or both who help them resolve that and they stay there. But usually what's happened during that process is they've actually just started the planning, right? The customer's suffering right. the impact. They've just started the consulting practice and they've gone through the journey and then they've resolved them without moving them back. I always say to people that the first thing I want to do with a customer is a current state assessment. I want to see where you're at because if we know where you're at, we know the steps we need to take to get you to wherever your destination is. And to your point, when you write on the whiteboard on the right-hand side, the destination, I think that's consulting 101. We have to understand yep. what the goal of the company is so that we can show them how we get there um, and we can map the business and technical together. So anyone who's backing out of a cloud provider has probably, and this is a very general statement, of course, but has probably just not done a good architecture job in getting there in the first place. Because and a, and a lot of times they'll own that when it, when it, when they're called out for it they'll they'll own it. Um, they they realize they poo pooed. They they were too big for their britches and they they took too big of a step, too big of a leap, uh, without a plan, without a parachute, and um, and it just it, luckily there are things out there like ONTAP that can just quickly send all your data right back, and mm. you stand you push the power button on your servers, and hopefully within a day or so you're back online. Yeah, but and hopefully you hadn't killed all your circuits yet, right? <laughs> yeah, I mean that story we just talked about—you know, going from uh, from data center into cloud and, and coming back—it's the same with people who did virtualization for the first time. They right. went and they took all their servers, they P2V'd them, and then they went oh, onto local storage on the server, probably local storage, or onto yeah. one big RAID five or one big, yeah. you know, whatever it was, and then it ran terribly. It's because you've put it in a different environment and you haven't changed anything enabling it to work properly. So right. it, it comes back to, I always harp on this, let's do a design before we buy stuff. And then, you know, let's do operational verification once we've actually implemented something to make sure it's doing what we said it would in the design. 
and then go from there. And that'll yep. solve 90% of problems just off the bat. Um, so totally. I remember quite recently, actually this year, I had this customer who asked me for a, a design. They had a, a ransomware risk that they wanted to mitigate, uh, as everyone mm. does. So they wanted to separate two of their environments so that they both wouldn't get compromised at the same time. I said, cool. Yeah, conceptually, this is, this is a good idea. Let's go down and, and do a design and work out what we're going to do. So gave them a proposal. We're going to go through the conceptual phase first. We're going to understand from a business perspective what we're trying to achieve, right? What are the risks and all that? Then logical, then physical. No, no, no. We just want to go to the physical stage was the, the comment. And I said, well, can't really do that because if I don't know what you're trying to achieve and we haven't gone through it and properly understood it, we can't really jump there, right? And they're like, yeah, but we don't have time. Well, if you don't do it properly, you're for sure not going to get the result you want because you don't know what the result is. Or right. person A has an opinion on what the result might be. Person B has another opinion and the CIO and the business has a different opinion. So then when we deliver the outcome the sysadmin loves, the CIO says, what have you done? This is wrong. So just understanding what we're trying to achieve, I see that mistake happen constantly. Um, mm -hmm. And then... The other thing was that customer asked me, we're going to separate these environments by creating two vCenters. We've currently got one. Now we're going to have two. And I said, okay, cool. So are we going to have two active directories? No, no, no. We're just going to have two vCenters. Those hosts can't get compromised the same time as this host. I said, well, all you're going to have now in your ransomware attack is two compromised vCenters instead of right. one. Um, you've just doubled your, your, your attack vector. Yeah. So you, you've just made it worse. So it's really important you know, customers that we go through what we're trying to achieve. So when we draw a logical diagram of what things will look like, it's going to make some sense because it's going to be mapped back to what we're trying to achieve. And then the physical design can be mapped to all that as well. So if we design first, purchase second, and then implement third, that's the right way to go about it. Whereas most people buy first, design second with all the constraints they've just given themselves by buying stuff that may or may not be fit for purpose. And then the implementation is going to be constrained as well. And your potential outcome is going to be significantly reduced from what it could have been. Um, right. And you're more than likely going to have to purchase additional items. Uh, and the old, <laughs> back in the day, actually NetApp used to, to save this actually. It was, you know, you'd get the V series and put it in front of another storage vendor because the other storage vendor didn't do the capabilities you needed. Uh, I remember I, saving I love sticking. I love sticking V series in front of a symmetrics. That was so much fun. <laughs> yeah, of course, right? That's what I'm sure. Just to have a bit of a, it's 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 a parasite in a way. If when you think of it, we just needed a host. We needed yeah. to we needed to infect to take over the drives, and then we could just then it's just on tap. Yeah. No, right. I, I loved it. I actually um yeah. I showed a demo this customer I had years ago, um, and people who know me will, will know who this customer was. They purchased this storage array, you know, big chunky storage array. Um, and then they went and deployed uh, VDI on it, and it was a large-scale VDI deployment, and they did a POC for 50 users. POC went really well. You know, they went through a pretty good process, um, but what they didn't test is scale. So mm. when they were doing their recompose operations, of course, this array was block storage. So back in the day, obviously, block storage had some limitations compared to file. Misalignment issues. Right? Well, I mean, that was the least of their worries, actually, but... Right. <laughs> That what basically was happening is it wasn't offloading the recompose operation. So it was being driven by the ESX host. 
gotcha. effectively, you know, it was a VAI issue, right? So right. basically what happened was when they tried to recompose a couple of hundred desktops, right, that array really just went to the feet, went to the ground, yeah. I should say. So, <laughs> and then what I did was I took an old um, IBM uh, 3850. It was a really old four socket uh, server. I think it was like four, four core CPUs or something. It was, it was a piece of junk. And I put the NetApp ONTAP Edge virtual appliance on it, which you might remember from nice. back in the day. Yeah. And I recomposed a thousand desktops, right? And did that in about what, two minutes, maybe. I've got a blog on it, actually. You can look it up from about 2010. Fast clones. Yep. Fast clones, right? So did that in no time at all. And obviously, the server's CPU was the constraining factor to boot the VMs, right. but the actual operation that was constraining the customer was a simple choice of implementation, file versus block. And, you know, obviously they both have their use cases, but had they actually gone through a design phase where they've gone, oh, we need to recompose a certain number of desktops in a certain amount of time, they would have realized that at the time, block storage wasn't capable of doing it anywhere near as intelligently as file with the VAI NAS uh, primitive. So, you know, just simple stuff like that. And eventually... Yeah, of course, it was a, a NetApp filer stuck in front that uh, that helped resolve that issue. Yeah. Um, but again, the, the customer had to pay for another device because they didn't design first. So, yeah, it comes back to any project we want to do, whether it's... You and know, and there, the, are, and, there are situations where you'll run into that kind of stuff in the cloud. I, I tend hmm. to see it more with networking in the cloud than any kind of like storage design or tooling or anything like that. Like somebody hmm. will muck up their subnetting or something like that mm. um you know with their vpcs oh i can't get i can't mount this volume well I, can it does it is it subnetted properly does it have routing mm. like those are those are the things we run into now instead of you know those sort of on-prem things yeah and i think this is a, a key to the the multi-cloud solutions with vmware as well it's like day one you got to get your ips right all right for some of the offerings if you screw that up day one it's it's a rebuild of an environment um yeah which because they stand up so quick, it's probably not the end of the world, but still you don't want to be rebuilding and standing up stuff unnecessarily just because you failed to design something simple. Um, but uh, that's a bit of a tangent. I, I just went on there on, on architecting. <laughs> so uh, hopefully we've, we've still got some listeners. Yeah. Uh, but Hey, can we take a quick break? Can we, can we take a quick break? Yeah, absolutely. I, I mean, desperately need to use the restroom. So oh, I'll be please. right back. Fire away. Two minutes. Okay, sorry about that. 
Oh, just starting oh. to get the shakes. <laughs> no, all good. I've done the same before, so it's, it's all good. When I have to drink one of these, I drink, go through probably two of these a day. Oh, perfect. As long as you got electrolytes in it, that, that's a good thing. No, I, I eat enough. <laughs> Fair enough. Um, all right, we'll kick back off. All right, so let's ju- after a quick bathroom break. Of course, we're all human. Uh, let's jump back in and uh, and talk some of these these VMware uh, and Nutanix multi cloud solutions. Right, they're running on on either Nutanix NC two or they're running on VMware and vSAN. Um, and obviously, we're we're sizing environments like we do with HCI, where we're starting with three, we're going to n number of nodes. Um, where do you see NetApp fitting into that equation for customers? Um, we we've seen a shift as the so we we did uh, we had the SolidFire acquisition in 2015. We did go down the HCI route for a few years. Um, I think we I think we came in at the tail end of it. Honestly, um, I don't want to say that hyper HCI hyper converged is is over, but I, I feel like it's it's in a way come and gone. At least the um, the the fat of it, the novelty of it. Um, but that's also hard to say because there are still plenty of use cases out there for that kind of workload. We're, what we've seen people m- tend to steer to is um, uh, Chick-fil-A is a really good example. They're not a NetApp customer for what it's worth, but their, pub- their story is public. They have gone the route of Kubernetes mm. to where they're running K3S basically in every branch retail location. And any of the data that's stored is is sent back to the mothership or to the cloud, and centrally collected. I will say that I've seen this the similar. Uh, if you haven't looked up the Chick Fil A story, by the way, out there, audience, like you have to see. That, go look up the Chick Fil A presentation. I think it was reInvent twenty or it was DevOps World or something like that, twenty seventeen, something like that. Amazing story of what those guys architected. Um, we, I, I personally see something similar happening where we're getting branch robo locations that are slimming down to the amount of density that we're allowed, we, we can pack into 2U from a storage perspective. Like that's what people need most. I don't find a lot of compute needed in these smaller places anymore. Hmm. It's mostly uh, centralized storage for user shares, home drives. Uh, departmental shares, things like that. So the lion's share of the workload in those smaller places where you would typically put a smaller commercial HCI installation, something like that, you really just need like a, a decent storage system, hmm. you know, entry-level storage system that can then send things back to either a cloud or a central colo or wherever the, your mothership is that centrally stores all of that stuff. And frankly, I feel like that's been the prevailing model for a long time now. Like th- mm. I was implementing those kinds of solutions in the mid to er- mid to late 2000s mm. um, with MPLS networks and things like that for m- very large multi-regional, you know, they'd have 20 plus different regional offices around the country. Mm. They would all just have little pieces of storage that would send back over the MPLS network. They would authenticate over the MPLS network. There were no servers. Mm. Um, so now when you look at things moving to the cloud and we have things like ID as a service, Azure AD, hmm. um, all none of that stuff is being processed on-prem. I don't want to say none of it. That's a bit extreme. Hmm. I don't see a lot of that kind of stuff happening anymore or being a priority. I, I see the priority shifting to make more of these integrated SaaS services the way forward. Um, so I'm, I'm torn, honestly. I, I think the HCI thing was really cool. I think we started with converged. Hmm. 
Obviously, we had VBlock and we have FlexPod, which is still one of the biggest parts of NetApp's business to date. Hmm. Um, and then I think we tried to slim things down and go linear scale with node-based architectures. And that was cool to an extent. But I think people have figured out in a combination of VMware, Kubernetes, and just general scale-out architecture scenarios that it it has certain use cases where it works well. But in a lot of them, it kind of, you, you get a bit of a diminishing return once you hit X number of nodes, depending on which system you're working with. And I think ultimately that was one of the reasons that we saw people moving away from our HCI solid fire stuff and just going back to the storage. Um, we had a lot, we have people that love it. Um, we have one of the biggest Kubernetes farms in the world is running on our HCI stuff. Mm. And I still, and I'm looking at it uh, as how do we get them off of this? What's the next best thing we can give them? And they're looking at the obvious contenders, the cloud. Mm. And it's, it's one of those industries where it's highly regulated. So there's a lot of hoops to jump through and a lot of bureaucracy to, to go through and, and things like that. There's a lot of, a lot of stakeholders um, and a lot of things that depend on that architecture being up and online. And it just makes too much sense not to go to the cloud. Now, the beauty is, is that it's, we can still use ONTAP under the covers because of the groundwork that we've done getting the first party services into all three of them. Mm. Doesn't matter which one they choose or if they're on all three, ONTAP is ONTAP is ONTAP and they're going to be good to go. So I hope that answered the question. Uh, that was a lot. I, I have a lot of controversial kind of opinions that uh, I, that's good. about HCI that uh, <laughs> a lot of people don't agree with. Um, a, I remember Duncan Epping and I used to have a pretty big kind of a uh, little bit of fisticuffs about what was HCI and what wasn't. Oh, the <laughs> definition of it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that, that, uh, yeah. Well, right? it's uh, at, at the end of the day, like a lot of these vendor terms are made up by a vendor, right? And yeah. then that vendor tries to say uh, it means this. And then another vendor comes along and says it's this. And, you know, HCI was then DHCI and then it was HCI something else and whatever. So they're all just industry terms. It, it doesn't really matter uh, which is which. But uh, yeah, a fun discussion nonetheless. Um, yeah. I mean, marketing departments hire agencies to go out and research for words or phrases that aren't in use already. Hmm. Yeah. And then that becomes the new term. Yeah. <laughs> so and, and that's the term they go out with as their big new launch because nobody's really used it yet. Hmm. Yeah. Got, like the antics of manufacturers to try and get big launches, the marketing departments of those is. You know, it can be a little eye rolly at times for those of us that are hands-on keyboard engineers. Um, you know, but at the same time, it's necessary. It works. Mm. Uh, yeah, you need to get attention stick. for products. So, yeah, I think that the job of people like us is to match the or highlight the difference between marketing and reality. Right. Yeah. And uh, obviously, you know, we've all uh, talked up solutions over in our lives, and and we do that to generate interest and and show people, hey, this is what you could be achieving. And then when it comes to designing and selling, it's like, all right, cool. Let, let's talk about what we can do today versus what we should be able to do in 6, 12, 18 months. But uh, um, one of the areas I'm super interested in, is, as all the listeners will know, is when people have moved into you know, an Amazon or an Azure onto a VMware solution, right? And they've got a lot of data, but not a lot of compute. Or they want to keep lots yeah. of copies of data for data management purposes. They want to address ransomware. Um, they maybe want to have the cloud as a bit of a sort of a warm standby for, for DR. Um, where's NetApp playing in that space? In the uh, cloud-based VMware one specifically? Yeah. 
Uh, so, I mean, that was one of the core tenets of our cloud initiatives was VMware in the cloud. Um, and we knew that they had that kind of stuff going on. Uh, we knew they had, we knew GCVE was there. We knew VMC was there in AWS. Um, AVS has an interesting backstory because it was cloud simple and then it wasn't and then it changed again. Like there's a whole fun legacy to that. But today, as it sits, um, you have VMC and AWS, you have AVS in Azure and you have GCVE in Google Cloud. If you run VMware on-prem with a NetApp today, you're aware of how we have the, the plug-in and the way that we can do all of the volumes work and put best practices on your hosts and all of that kind of stuff. Um, all of those, I think we are the only storage vendor that can, and I hate claims like this, but it's, it's actually real. I think we're the only one that can host NFS data stores in all three cloud providers for your cloud-based VMware deployment solutions, other than the cloud providers themselves hmm. with their native disks. So that's the that was the big play for us. And again, it was one of those things where we were approached. It wasn't some. It was kind of on our radar. We talked about it, but it was never really like a core tenant of why we were doing the storage solutions in the cloud. Hmm. It was going to be one of those boxes that got checked as what the kind of things it would facilitate. Hmm. And that was the, that turned out to be one of the biggest things because the amount of people that are so comfortable going back to the server hugger thing there, hmm. they've spent 10 years perfecting this VMware environment that they've built. Look at what I've built for you, right? They don't, they're not, they don't want to let go of it so quickly. So what if I told you that you can seamlessly storage vMotion using some of the VAA offload tools you can you can move stuff up to the cloud back and forth. It's vMotion. As long as you've got the plumbing in place, as long as you've got your circuits, your direct mm -hmm. connects, your express routes, any of those kind of things, as long as you've got the networking and the plumbing in place to do it, it's literally going to be like the servers are sitting next to each other on a flat layer two, or in a colo routed layer layer three that might be going uh, across colos. Mm -hmm. Like you're not going to notice the difference. And some of these circuits are 10 gig, 100 gig. Like it's, they're fast. Mm. And the, what I've seen so far is the ability to V motion between on-prem to the cloud. It's pretty seamless. Mm. The, the tricky part is the, if it's a uh, external workload, externally facing workload, you're going to have some, tr you got to do some tricky DNS. You got to get some cloud flare involved. You got to, um, you got to do some DDNS uh, as part of that. Yeah. If you're going to move so that, not just moving around, the workload, it's making sure there's plumbing at the yeah. front and back end uh, to make yeah. sure it's going to continue working. But yeah, for sure, the ability to vMotion. I think it was maybe five years ago or something. VMware demoed long distance vMotion, and everyone went ooh ah, and then most people went yeah, but the plumbing's not there. But the fact that VMware were working on it for so long in preparation for when the plumbing became available, which it really is today, uh, it is certainly in some regions at least. Um, it means it is a possibility. It's something you can literally do. Um, and even if you have a, a short uh, downtime window, you move the workload and then you do the front-end networking uh, as part of a change window, uh, that still right. simplifies your operation significantly. So I think that's really good. Or do a secondary version or copy or clone of that workload and mm. just cut over the, the mm. DNS. Like yeah, that, there's, there's multiple ways to do that. And the beauty of the cloud is like you're not limited by anything. I think that's one of the biggest things I always preach to people when they start questioning whether or not they should go to the cloud. And what have been your pain points for the last five years? Oh, we, 
you know, we had these performance problems on our storage. Oh, we needed we needed more shelves and more discs to get the performance we really wanted. And I said, well, what if all of those limitations went away? Hmm. Just like imagine that. Imagine you never you you had an infinite amount of performance and you had an infinite amount of capacity at your disposal. Hmm. What would you do? Because that's the environment you're going to be working in. Hmm. It, because it, you can turn that spigot on as much as your credit card can handle, mm. right? You can literally, you can, you can turn the fire hose on if you want to. Um, but if you want the performance for things, and here's the cool part, <laughs> fun little side story. I recently looked into what it would take to renew my CCNP mm. certification. There are now Python, Java, and there's coding questions on the Cisco certified network professional exam now, routing and switching exam. Folks, we're getting to a point now where everything is is going to be about automation. I know that we've been doing a lot of stuff with that. I've wrote VB scripts 20 years ago. There's what's what I used to deploy patches and stuff like that to a bunch of systems. Um, we've gotten way past PowerShell at this point. We are now getting into the point where we're, every architect needs to have VS Code and note needs to know YAML and JavaScript and Python. Because, to your point, a lot of these changes that would typically require change controls can now be programmatic triggers or are triggered based on certain programmatic guardrails to increase and decrease the amount of resources. Hmm. Now, eh, Nick, we've had that on-prem for a while. Not like this. Not at the capacity and the, and the scale that you have. So should you see a bump in traffic from a certain geolocation, well, maybe you stand up more resources in that particular region. Mm. All of these things that can happen in the cloud providers um, with multiple regions and multiple availability zones are a scale that 99% of architects have never worked with before. Mm. You've never had access to this level of resources, this level of, over, of um, redundancy, and this level of scale. Uh, just flexibility as well. Just... just the totally. enormous amount of choice. Uh, so there's a lot of different ways we can deploy things, which again, comes back to my point. You got to make sure you know what you're trying to achieve before you start using some of this stuff. Um, Cause everything has limits as well. So depending on yep. what services you use, you have limits. Um, and I guess that's one of the points I was going to touch on is, you know, if a customer has deployed like VMware or a Nutanix solution and they need some more secondary storage, or they need a very storage heavy environment, Scaling out nodes with HCI, you know, can become problematic from a capacity perspective, um, yep. you know, and depending on the node types and sizes, sometimes you you architect your solution and it's still inefficient. You're, you're out of balance. Um, so storage-only nodes was, was something Nutanix did years ago, um, which helped that on-prem, um, not necessarily always available uh, in the hyperscalers. Um, and things like vSAN Max will come out at some point uh, in the hyperscalers uh, with, uh, with vSAN 8. Um, but certainly in the interim, right, or even if that solution ends up being viable, but in the interim, we're, we're running a, a four-node cluster, but we have like 10 times the storage we can put in those those nodes. We can just plug in that NFS data store, like you said, and, and start using it. Uh, I think yeah. that's a, it's a great option. Um, and if you're in that situation where you're capacity constrained, you know, yeah, you can scale out hosts, uh, but it's probably not going to deliver the capacity you need effective or commercially viably. Um, so something like NetApp is, is definitely something to look at. Yeah. And I, uh, 
you know, I'll, I'll say this on sort of on the record about VSAN. Like there's, I like the idea of it. I, I on paper, it sounds like a good idea. The implementation has not been good. Um, the, I think it, like you said early on, there's been improvements. It's gotten better, but would I ever there? Like it, there's a reason it's got less than 10% market share still after being around for 10 years. And I, I ask myself, would I ever bet my company's availability on it? No. Okay. I could do some back end stuff. Yeah. I'll I, I could run with, some uh, a VSAN OSA for sure. Like everyone knows that. Yeah. It's, it's no surprise, yeah. right? I've put out blogs about it. Um, and, and I stand by those, uh, those observations. I think the the big shift for me is, you know, would I bet, you know, everything on OSA in the early days? Well, definitely not. That was my opinion. Yeah. You know, with ESA, I think that the story is yet to be told, but architecturally, I think it's, it's far superior than OSA. So I think a lot of the risk you're referring to, um, is, is true. I agree with you, um, is very much focused on the earlier versions of OSA. Um, and I think ESA is, uh, is going to improve a lot of those. Uh, but to your point, you don't have to bet your company on any product right. actually in the cloud. You can actually go, cool, I love vSAN. I'm going to use vSAN. Or I don't want There's to use vSAN. better, cheaper, more flexible, more feature-rich options out there hmm. available in the same cloud providers now. And you don't have to depend on 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 that to, to get it. I know you might have used it on-prem in, in certain ways. It's going to be a different experience. In, in the cloud and you're going to need the ability to move things around mm. in a very agile way. So if you've started, you probably know what I'm referring to. If you haven't started yet, you probably haven't run into this yet, but you're, you will be shocked at how much you have to move volumes and stuff around across availability zones, across regions, all of that stuff. It, mm. It's all going to come into play for you at some point. So, and this yeah. is actually a good problem to have. It's it's you've got the option yeah. to move across regions and availability yeah. zones and things like that, uh, which is great for resiliency, business continuity. It's great for like a ransomware recovery. So all these things are good, but they do require a lot of planning and you know consideration. So architects have got their work cut out for them. Uh, and to your yep. point earlier about having to know automation. Um, you know, that's a hands-on skill that I think architects should have. Um, and I've always been a, a big proponent of architects um, being hands-on. I think at a certain point, if you lose your hands-on skills, your value as an architect, certainly as a solution architect, I should say, uh, diminishes. So the best solution architects I know in the world, most of them are VCDXs or NPXs, and they're very hands-on. Right? And these people are, are very valuable. Um, CCIEs, very valuable because they're very hands-on, like CCIE is, is more of an engineering certification than an architect one, uh, but there's some overlap with architecture, um, but very hands-on people. And I think that's where you want to be as a solution architect. And the nirvana is obviously if you can be an enterprise architect focusing on business while still maintaining good or great solution architecture skills, those are the people I hire at my company, just as a yeah. pitch. That's, I see enormous value in those people. So... You know, that I think is the nirvana. And why is CCNP, you know, testing on automation type questions? Because it's valuable. It's something that, you know, has merit. I'm sure it's not 80% of the exam, but I'm sure no, there is no. some of it, right? So, no. you know, it, it's an important piece. And you may not need to be an expert in it, but you should be competent. 
uh, in at least the concepts um, yeah. so that you can work with people to automate, you know, all those important steps. So, yeah, I think automating... You should be able to write a Python script that'll push a config down to a router. Hmm. Like, that's... Yeah, sort of simple And it's still using TFTP and, and those kinds of fundamentals um, to do a lot of that stuff. Hmm. Um, but that's that's where it really comes down to. I, I look at this as... It goes back to the curmudgeon kind of stuff we were talking about earlier in the show about there's going to be certain people that just go, nah, I'm good. Hmm. And then there's going to be the people that actually take an initiative, have a little bit of ambitious drive, or just a general engineer's curiosity. Hmm. More of, of, of taking the VCR apart. Like for me, learning the little bit of Python that I know has been more, I mean, frankly, it's been driven by AI, curiosities around working with Jupiter and things like that. But I, I look at it in the sense of, okay, I'm, I'm eight years old taking the VCR apart again. I am not a developer by any means. Mm. I know a little bit of VB scripting and enough PowerShell to break stuff, and I will get in trouble. Um, but I, I look at Python and go, I understand XML. I understand YAML. I, I can do all of that stuff. But I start getting into some of the, the deeper Python stuff, and I'm just I start to go... I don't know what this is going to do. Mm. <laughs> uh, click. Uh, sheet. Let's see what happens. Mm. Um, but that's, that's one of the reasons why I have this lab is because I love breaking it. As miserable as it is to put it all back together or to try to recover it mm. in a weird, morbid way, that's half the fun for me. Mm. It's, it's really how I got started um, in, in kind of my early consulting career 20 plus 25 years ago was fixing every somebody else's broken stuff yeah well that's that's my and job today. that's where you I'm cut your teeth right <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's not my broken stuff i'm just i'm just mm. the i'm just the guy that comes in and gets paid a lot of money to to, to fix the things that your team mm. couldn't fix and that was that was fun to, it was very stressful it was fun to do for a few mm. years um and then i, ju- I just really wanted a nine-to-five job because <laughs> though those the hours on those kinds of jobs can be brutal yeah, definitely. Um, when you got to do seven days a week, 12, 14 hours a days. And, yeah, you know, well, that, that's what bad. happens now with ransomware attacks. Everyone's working like seven days a week, 10 hour days. And if you're in Las Vegas, you probably, there's some sysadmin doing that right now, actually, after that uh, announcement on Twitter. Um, the casino put out that job anything. offer. Yeah, so uh, that must be a tough, uh, tough life. But uh, it I, is, there I, is, I, I'm hoping it'll never happen, but I hope. If I in a perfect world we would have a postmortem conversation mm. about what happened, just a full debrief, mm. what it took to recover, um, and what lessons they learned, and what they would do if it happened all over again, sort of debrief postmortem, right? Yeah, because I mean, this is a, a goal of the I'm, I'm trying to dance around and think about the thing, the fundamental things that I can potentially mention. Like there's there were things that were affected that should not have been affected. Mm. There were things that were affected that um, were not initially affected, but it's, you're kind of in that situation where uh, it's an, or else you get, you get put into a bit of an ultimatum situation. So um, I don't know. I, I look at this as with ransomware, it's something we've been really focused on at NetApp, like big time spotlight on for the last few years, because we have the, we have such dense storage, mm we can keep like decades of data, petabytes of data mm-hmm. in a very small comparatively footprint. Mm-hmm. Um, so our ability to detect that something 
is going wrong is paramount. Mm. And a couple of things I'll shout out real quick. We have a software side and it's a bit of more of a kind of a firmware level subsystem level side to the ransomware thing. Mm. Um, We bought a little company, Tel Aviv based company a few years ago and ended up folding them into our cloud insights product. We, we called it cloud secure, but it's now kind of an add on to our cloud insights monitoring product. And what it does is it builds a model, an ML model around your habits, your data use habits. And if it detects anything out of the ordinary that is not quote unquote normal behavior based on the model that it's been, it's trained itself with, it will immediately take a snapshot Mm. just in case. What we found is that is 98% effective in most cases. Mm. You may lose 10 minutes of data. If you have the monitoring software set up with your systems with the cloud secure add-on. Mm. Right? Well, at least if, now, the if beauty that map is taken, you can revert to the previous one that was taken as, as a normal schedule. And then you know sure. okay, cool, that was a change. And yeah, you've lost a bit of data. There's an RPO issue. Um, but... You know, that's a, a really good fast track for those who are not familiar with ransomware. Part of the problem is discovering where your good copy of data is. So <laughs> yeah. this is like a, a little cheat code to try and find that that copy that you can restore to quickly and have high confidence in because restoring data sometimes is slow, depending on your vendor. It can be very, very slow, very cumbersome. You don't want to restore something, discover it, the problem is still there, and then have to go to something else, restore again, and go through that five times because your recovery time just blows out. We're talking days and, and weeks at this point, whereas a solution like this can potentially restore you, you know, or you can at least do that discovery piece of what data is the safe copy within a short space of time. So I think that reduces yeah. your RTO, um, reduces your data loss, um, and it, like you say, it, it's pretty simple. So <laughs> appropriate name. So that is the software side of it, and it works in, in any of our, it can monitor anything that's in any of our services in the cloud or on prem as a sort of cloud insights is sort of a central SaaS based uh, monitoring tool for all that. We've got over five hundred different um, things that we can put. What do we call it? No, me- monitored units, I think measured units, something like that is the cute name for it. But so you can manage, you can look at and monitor anything in your environment, including cloud objects, Mm. um, whether they're ours or not. The second part of the stool uh, of of this for us is at the sub-level side. So for our our first-party services, where it's actually on tap running and for our on-prem systems, there is the similar practice is happening at the kernel level in on tap. Meaning we're monitoring, we're building models around all of that stuff. We collect and, and build analytics around that, or behaviors, traces, all of that kind of stuff. And we kind of learn what is normal behavior for you. Mm-hmm. The second, And we also have the blacklists of the file types. That's all stored. So the second anything like that comes in, it's immediately quarantined. Snapshots are taken of the volume that it's discovered in. Mm-hmm. And so it, it's not 100% effective. Nothing that's reactive like that ever mm. will be. Um, there are things we're looking at that I can't talk about that we could potentially do to get around that, such mm. as temporary write cache sort of buffers. 
um, that would give us more of a real time mm. uh, ability to do that kind of thing. Um, but I, I will say that we're looking into ways that we can be even more, but again, 98% of the time, one of those two things will catch mm. that. Now it's, it's easy for us to go out and say that, but if a customer doesn't, to your point about RPOs, if a customer hasn't gone through and designed an hourly snapshot 24 times a day, six days a week, seven, four times a month kind of schedule, that's just a routine for every single volume that they have on the system. That's I, I can't help you there. <laughs> I, it's, it's one of those things where it's, you have to know and be aware of what your routines are for your recovery efforts, because you have to build your workloads around that. Give you an example. You're snapshotting the volumes of an, or, uh, an Oracle database. You're doing it hourly. Well, how do you get the hour back if you have to recover? Well, mm. online redo logs, right? So you're, you're probably, if you're running an Oracle database, you're probably store or SAP or anything like that. You're probably running, storing online redo logs in a separate mount somewhere. I would recommend doing it in two different locations, two different systems. If you have the ability, um, two different locations, if you have the ability, because in the event that there is a ransomware attack, in the event that there is a failure of any catastrophic of any kind, you can immediately stand, you can stand by your sketch or standby server, remount everything in, you know, FS tab and mount everything up and then roll back in your redo logs. Might take 10 minutes. You can be back up and running in less than an hour. If that. Yeah. The key is detect the issue. That, that's the, the main part. Yeah. If people see, if there's something dormant in your system for days or weeks, then you know, you're really having a bad time. So detecting something and preventing it getting to that point where you're fully encrypted and, you know, you're actually considering paying ransoms is is obviously ideal. Um, so I'd love to actually get you back to give us a bit of a demo of that one day. Uh, oh, yeah, definitely. I think that would be a, a cool episode to show people the hands-on piece. We've talked a lot conceptually. Um, but, uh, yeah, I think today's been really good. We, we've hit like an hour and a half, so I think we, we better wrap up here. But part two... Uh, coming soon, hopefully, um, we'll we'll do some live demos of, of the ransomware recovery piece and and the steps involved because it's a hot topic. Everyone's asking me about it. There's, there's plenty of options, but it's important to deep dive from you know the the marketing to the reality as well. So, Nick, yeah. hey, thanks very much for for coming on the show and look forward to part two. Uh, obviously, I've uh, dobbed you in already for it, so you have to do it. Um, but uh, I'm sure everyone will love it. And uh, yeah, looking forward to speaking again soon. Yeah. Thanks again, Josh. I really appreciate it being here and uh, we'll definitely, I'll sign up for a part two and uh, I'll bring some special videos that we did where we actually encrypted a system and showed how to recover from it. So even better. all that's out there publicly, if you want to go look for it. Cool. Oh, we'll, we'll do it here and we'll, we'll talk through the pros and cons and, and do a bit of a deep dive on it. So that'll be great. There we go. Awesome. Sounds good, Josh. Thank you, man. Thanks again. Cheers.